HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Naz Daravian, writer, actor, and author of the acclaimed cookbook, Bottom of the Pot, Persian Recipes and Stories. In today's episode, we'll talk to Naz about Persian cooking migration and memory, and we'll hear Nas's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. In her groundbreaking cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Julia conveyed all that French food meant to her. In her time in France, Julia discovered a culture steeped in food, part of the very soul of the country. And having no other platform at the time, her mission was to capture that on paper so others could share in her discovery and passion. Julia's great challenge was how do you take time-honored traditions and lessons passed down through generations and make them meaningful and understandable for those from another culture? Julia realized that the book had to accurately reflect sorry, accurately represent the food culture it chronicled, but at the same time, translate those elements in an accessible way. That was the triumph of mastering the art and also why it's endured. Today's guest shares in this tradition of how to translate the love and magic of, in this case, her native Persian cuisine, and make it relatable for the American table. Nazdaravian was born in Iran 
raised in Vancouver, and as an adult moved to Los Angeles to pursue acting. It was in L.A., where as an untrained cook, she hungered for the food she knew best from home. This led Naz on a journey to learn to cook her family's Persian dishes. And like Julia, she then decided to share them with a wider audience, whether those new to Persian cooking or from the Persian diaspora. What began with a blog led to an entrancing cookbook, Bottom of the Pot, Persian Recipes and Stories, published in 2018. The Foundation's introduction to Naz happened when her cookbook was awarded the IACP Julia Child First Book Award last month. The IACP Julia Child First Book Award recognizes a breakout book by a first-time author, harkening back to how Julia began. It also represents the importance to Julia, IACP, and the Foundation of fostering great food writing. As we discussed back in episode 15, when Samin Nosrat was the recipient of the same honor for her book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, the Foundation supports the IACP Julia Child First Book Award with a grant designed to spur on the author's food writing career. Today, we're delighted to talk to Naz about her book and about Persian food. Welcome to the podcast, Naz. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We're excited to talk about your book and all things Persian food. So, Bottom of the Pot is so much more than, to me, or at least to me, than a collection of recipes. It's really a story about an ancient culture, a, a story about food and migration, and a story about your family history. And in the book, you really weave a wonderfully lyrical narrative about the interplay between food memory and migration. And then you mention the twin poles of nostalgia and assimilation for immigrants. Can you talk about what these two twin poles are? Sure. Um, my family moved, immigrated to Vancouver, Canada in the early 1980s, 1982 to be specific. And we were maybe the fourth Iranian family in, to land in Vancouver. So there wasn't a big community um, of Iranians in Vancouver yet. Now, of course, there are many, many Iranian families and Iranians who live in Vancouver. But at the time, in the early 80s, Maybe, there was just maybe a handful of us. So, you know, weekends were spent with um, other Iranian families trying to figure our way through this new world. And without a doubt, it was always over a meal. Um, that's what we do. Persians get together and they cook and we eat together as part of the culture. Um, but what was most interesting to me was in those early months of me um, going to elementary school in Vancouver, uh, you know, my friends didn't, my Canadian friends didn't really know much about Iran or what they knew of Iran was what they were seeing on the nightly newscast, which wasn't very favorable, <laughs> yeah. as you can imagine, in the early 80s. Um, Iran was in the news a lot, as it is today. <laughs> Um, and there were a lot of sensationalized images and it wasn't the Iranians that, you know, that I knew, or at least as a young child, I didn't feel like it reflected, um, the culture that I grew up in. It, you know, I always say governments do not represent people. So, uh, I formed this tactic and it wasn't really anything that I had thought through, but, you know, my friends would come over for play dates, and um, soon it would lead to that 
five o'clock hour. And if you're at our house, you stay for dinner. So um, we would invite my friends to stay for dinner. And sure enough, they would fall in love with the food, which kind of opened the doors to um, conversation about where I was from and where Iran is on the map and how do you pronounce the name of the country properly and whatnot. But at the same time, I loved our, um, you know, weekly lunches to, um, there's a, there's a restaurant in Vancouver called White Spot, which is, uh, you know, you can get your burgers and fries and clubhouse sandwiches. And so it was this lunch at White Spot or McDonald's and then dinner at home um, with, you know, the rice and the stews and the platter of fresh herbs uh, and, and how to navigate these two worlds, um, one being the world of home which was all about comfort um, and, like you mentioned, nostalgia to me, but um, also being able to step out and defining my place as as a young child, as a 10-year-old in Vancouver, um, just as a regular, you know, regular 10-year-old does, um, hopping on my bike and going with my friends to the public library and then stopping at McDonald's or White Spot. Um, for lunch. I always think, um, I always say mm, people of my generation, those of us who were maybe born in Iran, but left at a young age um, to immigrate to wherever, be it Canada, Australia, wherever it was, I think of myself as always living in the in-between spaces. I don't know if that makes sense, but not quite fitting in anywhere and at the same time, fitting in everywhere. <laughs> no, no, it um, does make sense to me because actually, my wife was uh, is British by nationality. Was raised in Paris before she moved to to America to go to school. So I always say she's um, half British, half French, and half American. And I think that represents the same idea that for her. It, she's all of those things together, rolled up together, and it kind of, the percentage moves with the different set of um, moments that you're in. Right, exactly. And and it's funny because for me, you know, growing up in Canada, it's a little things like when I spell my name, when I cross the border into Canada, I spell it N-A-Z. <laughs> and then yeah. when I come back home to L.A., I'm back to N-A-Z. <laughs> Um, and I think food plays a part in, in this whole discovery of identity for me and that it's a conduit. So it's a conversation starter, um, at the very least. And, um, it's, it's an in to get to know, uh, my Persian culture, my Iranian culture. And it always has been really since immigration, that's the role food played, um, for me, and it, it eased me into um, introducing friends who are not familiar with Iran um, into into a conversation about you know where the what this country is, who we are as people, just as regular old people. <laughs> no, I think well, and there's nothing more. There, you know, I think that's what 
the world is sort of w- woken up to discussing that food is more than the food itself, that it, it's one of the most common shared experiences of all human beings and even animals, right? We all eat. We all eat. Um, but more than that, Todd, I think it's also we all like to gather. So, yes, it's, it's the food, but it's also the gathering around my kitchen table, even if it's just over um, some lavash bread and feta cheese and, uh, you know, walnuts and fresh herbs. That's, that's enough for me um, to, to gather and to start speaking and laughing and maybe not laughing, you know, um, it could be anything. But it's a, well, it's, a, it's a gathering around the kitchen table. Well, no, I love that you said that because I also thought in, in thinking about speaking with you today that I know from my own personal experiences that, that food does have an elevated importance in, in Persian and many other Middle Eastern cultures as part of life, of family life, of, as you say, gathering. And, and it has a similar reverence that food does in, fr- in France. You know, it's not something mm-hmm. you don't talk about. It's something to really get into. So could, could you talk about, you know, for you, in your view and from your personal experience, what food means to Persians in Persian culture? So food runs in our blood. <laughs> you can't speak to a Persian and not, the conversation of food will inevitably come up. It's a part of the culture in the same way and with as much importance, I would say, as the literature is, um, as the art is, as the music is. So it truly does represent the culture. And like you mentioned, um, I think Middle Eastern, Middle Easterners and in particular Persians um, are known for our um, incredible sense of uh, generosity and hospitality. Uh, so, and the most important way that we can show this is by having you join us at our table and make sure that you're comfortable and well-fed. So it's ultimately, it's the way that we show our love and appreciation and generosity. Um, we take our, uh, hospitality very seriously (laughs) and sometimes we might go a little overboard, but there is always room at our table. We can always accommodate anyone that knocks at the door. And we love to feed people. Um, it gives us, it makes me in particular, and I think many Iranians would say the same, is that it makes us feel good um, to feed people and to see people enjoying themselves and feeling relaxed at our table. Well, and I think that's, I was just going to ask you, because you tell some lovely stories in the books, and you you were starting to discuss this as well as sort of food and having meals with your particularly Persian meals that other people got invited to as a barrier breaker. And I think that understanding that, because I don't think this is necessary to evolve cultures at all, is that you're basically saying at a fundamental level, generosity is a major part of Persian culture. And that's such a wonderful idea that a culture is steeped in being generous to others and to strangers. I think anyone that um, has encountered an Iranian anytime at any point in their lives will speak to this generosity. The first thing that we'll say is, 
you must come over to dinner. <laughs> what are you doing tonight? You're coming over, <laughs> you know, and there's this back and forth of what Iranians do. Uh, it's called, there's a specific term for it called taro, which is this, um, frankly, it's an art of uh, me inviting you, and if you were Persian, then you would say, oh, no, no, I cannot come over. And then I would say, but you must come over. No, I cannot come over, but you must come over. And ultimately, one of us will give in, and it, you, it will usually be me. I will give in. You will give in and come over. <laughs> <laughs> well, any, anyone who's seen your cookbook would, would probably give in a lot, lot, lot <laughs> more quickly now. Yeah, that's true. I, I Sometimes there is no tarof at all. You must come over. Okay, what time? <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Well, you've lost that battle now. Or you're going right. to win every time, whichever way you look at it. Um, so it, it, that's, it's very cultural. The, um, the art of generosity, that's just who Iranians are. We're, you know, a warm people who love gatherings, who love meeting new people, who love discovering, you know, um, uh, discovering your stories, sharing our stories. And I think another thing that happens at these gatherings, be it small or big, around, you know, my cramped kitchen table is, unfortunately, I think in the past few years, we've lost um, the ability to have conversations that, you know, just the, the art of conversing um, without getting heated and everyone retreating to their camp. Um, and if at the very least, um, if we can gather, be it just with the, you know, around the table with a magnificent feast of rice and stews or just a piece of bread and cheese, we, we need to keep the dialogue going. I, li- I always say once we stop conversing, we lose hope. Um, so we need to keep talking to each other. Well, I do want to come back to that because I also uh, was very intrigued by your, um, I think that's a running theme in your book about the connections between food and hope. But let's come back to that. So I also love something else you wrote about. You you, you linked a concept uh, that you, you said you learned in acting about, quote unquote, throwing it all away when after you prepare thoroughly for something at the moment of performance, you let all of that go. <laughs> And to me, this is a very big lesson from Julia that I think about all the time in what I do and was a very big misconception about Julia, that she wasn't improvising all the time, that actually she prepared incredibly thoroughly to an enormous level of detail and even used a stopwatch and all kinds of things. But she intuitively understood that you prepared, 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 and then you forgot all about it and you went with the flow. And so I love that you had a similar approach in what you're doing, and you were relaying it to cooking, particularly cooking Persian food. So can you talk about why you put that in and how you connect it to cooking? Mm-hmm. Yes, letting it all go. So, you know, in acting, what we were all taught in acting school was that you, you go through this um, intense period of preparation. So you get your character's you know, background and history and you rehearse and you rehearse and you rehearse and do um, everything that you can. But come time for those, you know, for the lights to go up on the stage or for when they call action, you have to just trust. You have to trust that the homework's been done. You've done everything that you can and you have to let it go because no one wants to watch a performance that's um, robotic, right? 
when mm. if you can see the work in a performance, that's not enjoyable. You yeah. want to you you want to watch a performance that you feel is happening in the moment. Um, you know, people just reacting to each other. And I through the process of writing this book, I come from a food culture that does not believe in recipes, the written recipe. Um, everyone, you know, from my mother to family members, everyone, you know, these recipes have been passed down orally and people cook through intuition and by smelling their food and by tasting it. So no one's reaching for the tablespoon and the cup measure um, or hardly ever doing that. Um, so, when it came time to write down these recipes for the book, I went through that whole process. I had to reteach myself how to make this food by being exact, which was not easy for me. <laughs> um, but once I did that, there comes a point in the cooking where you have to let all that go. You've done everything that you can. Maybe you've prepared this dish that was very unfamiliar to you and using ingredients that you had never used before. So you followed my recipe exactly the first time you've made it, maybe the second time you've made it. But ultimately at the heart of Persian cooking is you and your personal taste and your spirit. So you have to let all that go and just bring you to it. And I, you know, relax in the kitchen. I'm all about home cooking. Um, that that intrigues me the most. So when I see people um, being so rigid with the recipe, I just want to say, drop your shoulders. Don't worry about it. It will most likely turn out okay if you've been tasting along the way and adjusting to your personal preference. And just trust that it's going to work out. Um, and that it doesn't have to be perfect. I think that's uh, another point that Julia touches on as well. Um, I'm not about things, food doesn't have to be perfect. The meal that I put on the table, depending who I'm preparing it for, um, but I'm not striving for perfection. Well, no, I think that's all really helpful advice. And, and, and I think especially part of the perspective that you bring is you know that you're reaching out to an audience that may be less familiar with Persian food or not at all, and certainly even less familiar with preparing it. So try, trying to give them a, a relaxation of it's better to try it and, and not hit the mark 100%, but if it still tastes good, then you're doing fine. Exactly. Um, and it's, you know, to be fearless about it, too. So go in, go in with without fear, um, you know, grind that saffron, take a moment and take in all the smells and, um, you know, the beauty of it all. And then just have fun with it. Make the stew how you and your family like to eat it. Um, the, the Persian uh, food police isn't going to, you know, crash down into your kitchen. <laughs> Sometimes right, they well, might, but, you know. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and talk to Naz more, more about Persian food and specifically her cookbook and some of the tantalizing tastes and smells that are in there and waiting for you. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry. Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Welcome back. We're talking to Naz Duravian, author of the IACP Julia Child First Book Award-winning Bottom of the Pot, Persian Recipes and Stories. So, Naz, it's it's interesting to link up your life experience in Iran and a little bit in Italy and now for quite a while California, all places that have food cultures that are really rooted in the importance of ingredients. So let's talk specifically about Persian food and what are the key ingredients that really underpin and define uh, Persian cooking? You can't speak of Persian food without talking about saffron. Um, Saffron is the golden flag bearer of all Persian cuisine, Iranian cuisine. And it's the most um, expensive spice in the world. And for good reason, Um, you know, the um, harvesting of saffron is painstaking. So, and Persian food relies on um, obviously taste, but aroma, fragrance is also really, really key. And saffron brings that. Um, It brings both color, taste, and aroma. And there's a specific way that we use saffron, which is by, you know, you buy the threads. But then we grind the threads because saffron is so expensive. You grind the threads either in a mortar or pestle or if you have like me, a dedicated saffron grinder. Um, This way it's more economical. So you take a little bit of the ground saffron and we steep it in water, in hot water, just boiled water. Or some people do it over ice cubes. And this way you create um, kind of like a saffron tea. So it's saffron water. So it's more bang for your buck, essentially, rather than just throwing in the threads in there. And we use it in everything. So saffron is one of the main ingredients in Persian food, which you you just need. But then um, acids are also really key. And by acids, I mean um, ingredients that um, liven and brighten up a dish. So it can be as simple as lemon juice or lime juice, but then we get into um, sour dried limes, which are those, I don't know if you've seen any, um, but they're like the hard and shriveled dried limes. They look rather (laughs) alien-like. Yeah, they do do look like something you'd like to eat. (laughs) Right. But then what we do is you puncture them and then you throw them in your stew or the soup or whatever it is that you're making and they 
slowly release this um, very deep, earthy, musty, sour notes, and there's nothing like it. And I highly recommend um, trying and using these sour dried limes. I love them. Now, you don't have to eat the sour dried lime itself once it softens up. I like it, but it's a very acquired taste. (laughs) Um, But what it does is it releases its um, juices and its flavor into the stew or, you know, whatever dish that you're using it in. We also use um, sour green grapes, which we call gure. And um, they're also, my kids call them sour pops. And they're in season right now, actually. And we throw them into a stew like Horish Bodem John, which is the eggplant stew. And again, it's hitting these sour notes, but it's not like a make you wince kind of sour. It's to uh, what we say, my mother always uses this phrase, is to bring a dish to life. So to brighten it, to really give it that oomph. Um, and pomegranate molasses does the same thing. Barberries, tamarind. Yogurt, my beloved yogurt, um, also hits on those sour notes. And then, of course, it's the array of spices that we use. Um, And by spices, I don't mean heat necessarily. Uh, Persian food in general isn't spicy, although it does tend to get hotter and heat as you go to the south of the country. But um, the spices are for fragrance. So... Uh, you know, spices like dried rose petals. Um, we use damask rose petals, which are the um, the lighter rose variety. And we, again, we grind them and, and we use them, you know, as a spice in stews or in meatball mixes. And, and Todd, it's interesting. We use spices like cinnamon and cardamom in our savory dishes. Where in the West, I think we're accustomed to using these spices in baked goods or sweet dishes. It's the opposite for us. Um, they we like to use certain spices like cinnamon, 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 <laughs> excuse me, and cardamom <laughs> um, in in savory dishes. Again, for their aroma, but also they lend a really um, not a sweet note, but it's it's more of an aromatic flavor to to the dish. Uh, and all of these spices, I should say, a little goes a long way because you can quickly go from flavorful and aromatic to bitter. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, a little goes a long way. Yeah, no, it's an art to balancing. I was actually just having some um, pistachio cake or it might have been an almond cake and it was flavored with cinnamon and it was good. But actually, then when someone's like, oh, what's in it? I was like, well, actually, all I can taste is cinnamon. So they probably went a tad too far. Right, exactly. So you don't want to be able to pick out, oh, there's rose petals in this. It's really the combination of the spices that um, make up the flavor or aroma of a dish. And we call it adzie. Adzie can refer to either one particular spice or a spice combination. All right. Well, I love we're really getting to the art of Persian cooking overall, which I think your book does beautifully. Let's talk about some of the specific dishes. And I think in particular, um, do you have some recommendations? Because there's quite a lot of recipes in the book and they, they sort of range in their complexity. Do you have some suggestions of a couple of dishes that if you're new to Persian cooking and you want to try something as a good, you know, starting starting point? 
Yes. So um, our go-to, my husband's go-to is always the turmeric chicken. (laughs) And it's really, it's just turmeric and chicken and lemon juice um, and onion. Uh, But it captures, you know, a, a weeknight meal that comes together quickly. And if you can pair that with a pot of rice, that would be excellent. <laughs> um, and the rice, I, I highly recommend everyone giving a, a go to make Persian rice. Um, you know, then we can talk about tadig, of course, the crunchy, um, the crispy rice at the bottom of the pot. Uh, but if you can make, I also have a simple pot of rice, which is more like but made by absorption, which is what we're all more familiar with. Um, and then in the the celery stew, the Horish Kara, is really quite simple to prepare. And what I like about that dish is that um, it uses the herbs that we're so fond of in Persian cuisine. So there's parsley and mint, but I also use dried mint in that stew. And um, I encourage everyone to get some dried mint. I love it. You can also sprinkle it on your yogurt. I like to use it in my scrambled eggs. So if you have either one of the stews, um, the celery stew or the turmeric chicken, a pot of rice, either just plain yogurt at the table or chop or grate some cucumber into that yogurt, sprinkle it with the dried mint and some fresh herbs, you're set. You have yourself a weeknight Persian meal. That was excellent. And and so now now I've got got my um, homework to work on. That sounds like a really good way to go. And of course, in, in the book, you talk a lot about Tadik and how to make it and how you make it and, and the importance of rice. And I also love that you talk about um, fresh herbs, which are always such a time-consuming thing to deal with, but such a fundamental part of Persian food. So maybe you could talk, I meant to ask you like how I love how you have this idea that, you know, preparing herbs is like a communal family and friends experience, not a cook's solitary labor. So tell us, tell us your approach to, to preparing herbs. Yes. Um, my husband has dubbed it as sabzi jail. <laughs> and sabzi means herbs. So it's now become a joke that when I come home with loads of fresh herbs, it's either my husband or the kids or whoever is visiting, they're going to do some time in Sabzi jail, um, <laughs> which really means get, gathering around the table and going through the herbs and lending a hand. And I think in the olden days, back in Iran, it used to be that family, you know, usually the ladies. So the grandmas and the moms and the aunts and got together and just went through, you know, spent an hour maybe or two going through these herbs for the whole family. Um, these days, we we all live apart. You know, my family doesn't live close to me. So I've incorporated this um, ritual in my daily life with our friends here in Los Angeles, most of whom are not Iranian, but they've become very familiar <laughs> with this concept of going through the herbs. So you walk through the door, and it, which is not a very Persian thing to do, to put your guests and friends <laughs> to work. But this is where I, um, you know, the duality <laughs> in my identity <laughs> comes into play. So um, I let go of the formalities, and I gather everyone around the table and either pour them a 
cup of tea or a glass of wine or whatever it is. And we all go through the herbs. And before you know it, the job is done. <laughs> Excellent. I love that. I think I think it's such a good description of, of, of what you talk, what we talked about at the beginning and, the, and the, uh, uh, taking the best of both worlds and putting them together and making them work for for both how we live now and how we need to live, but also how we can improve our lives and community. Yes, and I know so many friends that, non-Iranian friends, who've um, reached out to me and said that going through the herbs has become a, a family routine for them. And it just brings so much joy to my heart to hear that. <laughs> um, I think, I think it's such a good way to approach what otherwise is viewed as prep. So that, that's a great, a great insight that, that you, you bring. And I had to ask, is your book, The Photography and the well, it's all photography in your books, is gorgeous. I mean, just stunning. But I want to give a shout out because obviously you had a very talented photographer. But I also, who did the food styling? Because obviously the the pictures can't look like that if someone hasn't styled the food really well. Who, who did it for your book? So the food styling was done by the uber-talented um, Valerie Eichmann-Smith. Uh, uh, she is a food stylist based in Los Angeles. Um, we shot the book in my living room for two weeks, two years ago, uh, two summers ago, and we, everything was cooked in my kitchen. Um, and the team was just incredible. So Valerie, the food stylist, her assistant, um, Sandra Tripicchio, and then of course you mentioned my, um, my super talented photographer, Eric Wolfinger, who I couldn't have asked for a more gracious and talented partner on this. Um, he just, he got me and he got this food and he got the story that I wanted to tell. So the whole team really um, just brought this book to life. Uh, it's like that extra um, splash of lemon juice that brings a dish to life. <laughs> um they, they were really the team that brought the book to life. So um, uh, I owe them a lot. <laughs> well, you guys obviously worked wonderfully together because it just came together so beautifully, which not surprisingly has helped you win awards. And I, we couldn't let the moment go to find out a little bit more what you're currently thinking about what you'll use the grant that comes with your IACP Julia Child First Book Award to do. Well, first of all, I'm so honored and, and touched by receiving this award. I can't even tell you. <laughs> I was almost in tears that night. Um, and then I could only say four words, and I had so much I wanted to say <laughs> to thank everybody. Yes, yes, Tanya Steele laying down the law at ICP. Yes, but which was, which was kind of lovely, actually, <laughs> to see. Well, you know, what do you say? Well, now that you brought it up, say what you said. I saw it on your feed, and I loved what you said. Do you remember what you said? I do. Tadig forever and always. <laughs> Beautiful prose right there. <laughs> um, so I am. I am so honored um, by receiving this award. And, um, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm working on possibly a second book, <laughs> which is always hard to say, actually, out loud. <laughs> Um, and it's a little bit like uh, being a mother who's gone through 
two pregnancies, I think it's a little bit like that. When you're going through the first, you say you will never do it again. <laughs> um, and then as time passes, you think, well, it wasn't that bad, was it? <laughs> um, so uh, I am planning on uh, doing this book is going to require a fair amount of research. So um, I hope that the grant will um, help in that, which I know it will. But also, I, I would love to introduce this food to, um, to kids, to American or any, all children in Los Angeles. So I'm hoping to host a few um, cooking classes for children and to make some of these dishes together. You know, uh, you just gave me a thought. We should hook you up. Do you know this organization, Common Threads? Have you encountered them before? No, I haven't. Well, we should get, I, we'll get in touch with you because Common Threads does kids' food literacy, and they have quite a developed program in Los Angeles, and they operate in about 10 cities across the country. But one of the neat things about their their curriculum, which was started by, um, uh, I'm going to mess up his name, it's Chef Artsmith, I think, um, who, but the part of their curriculum is global cultures and global cuisine. So if you're focusing on Persian food, it could really connect up because they use it to kind of expand the kids' view of the world at the same time to teach them about cooking. I would, I would love that. Um, yes, please do connect me with them. That. Yeah, I think, you know, my children, they have, it's, it's um, like history repeating itself a little bit because they have all their friends over, and guess what? They stay for dinner. <laughs> and I bet they, love I bet they do. You'll, you'll have a line <laughs> next time. They'll have kids they don't even know. Um, yeah, so that would be wonderful. So um, we're sh- quickly running out of time, but I definitely wanted to, before we go to the Julia moment, I wanted to talk to you about this returning message that you mentioned that I think is so important about connecting food and hope, but that can go in in many different directions and meanings. And I wanted to hear a little bit more from you about what that that means for you, that connection between food and hope. Hope is, you can't lose hope, right? (laughs) Even when, when at our darkest hours, I think we need, you have to have hope um, to move forward. But for me, I made that connection um, in the many, many times when I flipped that pot of rice for the tadig, for that crispy rice at the, you know, um, at the bottom of the pot. And in that moment, before lifting the pot up to see if the tadig has worked out or not, and many times it does, and many times it doesn't. And you just never really know <laughs> if it will or not. And that's part of the fun and the magic, too. But I feel like there's the hope in that moment, the hope for the Tajik to turn out, the hope for um, a great meal around the table. And for me, that just sort of snowballed into, you know, life as well, that there's always, there's always, a sliver of hope running through whatever narrative we have. Um, And there has to be, there has to be. And that's what I always um, hang on to. 
I think that's so lovely, and that that a book, a beautiful book on Persian cooking and Persian cooking in in another land, can 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 inspire us through the message of of learning to make tadik well too. I think is so so wonderful. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. So after the break, Naz is going to reveal her Julia moment. But let us know, are you a fan of Persian cuisine? Have you already tackled learning to make it at home? Or have you even tried Naz's recipes? Let us know by sending us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying this show? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Luke Griffin, and I'm the host of Bushwick Podcast. Each week, we share the remarkable stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in Bushwick a special Brooklyn neighborhood that's changing faster by the day. You can find Bushwick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen... Who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Naz, what's your Julia Moment? Well, my Julia Moment um, goes back to what we were just speaking of, is that moment of flipping the pot for Taddy. And, of course, there is that iconic um, moment from Julia's show where she's flipping the potato pancake <laughs> yeah, and it kind of um, gets out of hand and it doesn't quite turn out and it pieces of potato go flying out <laughs> of the pan and she doesn't lose her cool and it's all about she says you know you have to flip with conviction and that resonates with me so much because you have to flip that pot of rice with conviction, <laughs> even if it doesn't turn out, <laughs> if it sticks to the bottom of the pot or, you know, you have pieces of rice flinging everywhere, you have to do it with conviction and then do not apologize for your um, work. <laughs> so, which is hard <laughs> because as a Persian, then I just, even if it does turn out as a, as a Persian, I would have to, I couldn't take a lot of credit. I would have to say, oh my goodness, it would have been better or, you know, well, it's nothing. <laughs> no, you got to own it. <laughs> so flip with conviction. And even if it doesn't turn out, own it and move forward. There's always, you can make more tajig. Nothing's lost. Enjoy it. <laughs> Excellent. That's so great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Naz. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Keep us up with the Foundation on social media. Search at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N, on Twitter. Naz's book is Bottom of the Pot, Persian Recipes and Stories, with stunning photography by Eric Wolfinger. It was published by Flatiron Books in 2018. Ask for it in your favorite bookshop or search for it online. To keep up with Naz's work on social media, her handle is at Bottom of the Pot, all one word, on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. 
Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. And if you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, all the better. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>